This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Here now with the reading of God's holy word. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. He blessed in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this Lord's Day, I pray that you prepare our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit to receive it, that we would know and believe and trust concerning your word, concerning your covenant, your faithfulness to your people, and all these promises and blessings which come to their highest realization in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. What are Christians like? The people who worship the true and living God, how would you describe them to someone who didn't know? I'd hope if you're here today listening, you are one and would at least have your knowledge of yourself and those around you to draw from. But how would you explain what Christians are like to someone who never knew or heard of them before? A very human and natural tendency would be to describe Christians by external characteristics or behavior. 
Christians are good people. They are moral and upright. They go to church. They read their Bibles. They honor marriage between one man and one woman. They seek to raise their kids a certain way. Now, while these attributes are generally true of Christians, or at least a certain ideal that many Christians strive for, to describe Christians in this way would be to put the cart before the horse. Christians, the people of God, though this is not a visible or easily understandable trait, are first and foremost the people whom God has chosen, the people on whom he has set his blessings. The Heidelberg Catechism, a classic Reformed confessional statement, says this in one of its questions, But why are you called a Christian? Answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. So the first and foremost thing is because by faith I am a member of Christ and so share in his anointing. And then the other things that come proceed from that. Part of the potential difficulty in explaining what it means to be a Christian is that that which is most fundamental to being a Christian is something which is not of us, something that is external to us. That faith worked in us as a gift of God based on Christ's redeeming work and applied by the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ so that we can share in that anointing. You try to explain that to someone who has never heard of Christianity or Christians before, and you're already in pretty deep theological waters. And trying to offer the most basic of explanations, you're already plumbing the depths and power and glory and mysteries of the triune God and his works. So, if someone asked you to describe a Christian while you might struggle to positively answer, I do have one pretty good idea of a description you wouldn't use, and that would be roughly the description of Jacob that we have seen from the previous few chapters up to this point. Because Jacob has come into the position he has because of deception and fraud, even blasphemy. This has brought many great temporal consequences. Because of this, Jacob's family has been torn apart. His brother Esau is out to murder him. And now, for all of this, he is essentially being sent into exile. Jacob got what he wanted. He swindled away the covenant blessings and benefits, but he did it in such a way that will cost him nearly everything. He has scandalized and brought great heartache in his family, his family being the church, his family being the people of God on the earth at the time. And Jacob is about to learn some hard lessons as he goes on his sojourn to the east. But as we have looked so far at the early life of Jacob, I have reminded you, and I will remind you again, Jacob is at the bottom of a mountain of sanctification. Jacob does belong to God. He has been chosen by God. Jacob is a Christian. 
He represents the city of God. He is the carrier of the covenant promises given to Abraham and Isaac and now passed on to him. His behavior, his conduct is often unfitting, and yet God is with him. God is using him. God redeems him, and God will, through his life, more and more conform Jacob into the image of Christ, just like he does with us. God saves sinners, and God also sanctifies sinners. Well, Jacob's spiritual journey now takes the initial steps of a physical journey as he has departed on his way to Haran, where his distant family lives in the east. But today we see a very important stop that he makes along the way, where God himself pays a visit to Jacob to affirm and confirm the covenant promises and blessings that he has made. So we will look at this text of covenant continuation today in four points. First, we see presence in verses 10 through the first part of verse 13. God comes to Jacob in a dream, in a vision. And second, we see a promise in the second part of verse 13 through verse 15. God restates the covenant promises that he has made to Abraham and Isaac, but personalizes them for Jacob is chosen. And then third, we see praise in verses 16 and 17. Jacob is taken aback in awe at the presence of God in that place. And then fourth and finally, we see a pillar in verses 18 through 22. Jacob sets up a physical memorial to God's appearing there, but also a spiritual one. He takes a vow before God, contingent on God keeping his promises. So we have presence, promise, praise, and pillar. Those are our four points for this morning. So first we see presence in verses 10 through the first part of verse 13. So Jacob begins this journey towards the east, leaving his home and family at Beersheba and going towards Haran. He comes to a place, we find out, is near a city that was then called Luz. Now, this journey to Haran for Jacob, this would have been a very long journey, would have taken many, many days. In a straight line, it actually would have been several hundred miles. And it wasn't like he had a car or anything. He was, he was walking or he was on the back of an animal. It would have taken him a while to get there. So one of those nights on the way, he stops to sleep, as he would have often done. But it is not a night like any other. Now we see it noted here that Jacob takes a stone and uses it as a pillow. Seems that Jacob didn't have proper bedding with him. Whatever provisions he had brought with him seemed relatively minimal. Doesn't seem that he brought any other people or much in the name of supplies or even anything to sleep on. Now why is this? Was this poor planning? Was this consistent with the earlier expectation that he wasn't going to be gone for very long, though in fact he would be gone for several years? It wasn't like his family was poor and had nothing to give him. Isaac was very rich, having inherited all the wealth of Abraham and adding to it wealth of his own. But whatever led to this situation, we see Jacob as the chosen man of God facing difficulty in exile while the reprobate Esau is back home enjoying all the good stuff. Esau has wives. 
Esau will have children. Esau gets to live close to mom and dad while Jacob is off on his way to an unknown land with very little to his name. On this point, John Calvin offers an observation. He says, Meanwhile, let the reader diligently observe that while he who was blessed by God, that's Jacob, is cast into exile, occasion of glorying was given to the reprobate Esau, who was left in the, pres in the possession of everything, so that he might securely reign without a rival. Let us not then be disturbed if at any time the wicked sound their triumphs as having gained their wishes while we are oppressed. So in other words, just as Jacob is now facing difficulty in exile, though he was the blessed man of God, we should not be surprised if gods and our enemies seem to be having success in the world while we struggle and suffer as God's people. The order and priorities of this world do not always reflect the order and priorities of the world to come. In fact, very rarely do they reflect those priorities. Our vindication may not come now. It may not come in this life at all. It may not come until glory. So Jacob is on this journey. He stops that night to sleep. And in verse 12, we see that he has a dream. He has a vision. Now in this dream, he sees a ladder from heaven to earth. And we see, he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder. We see in the opening of verse 13 that the Lord stood above the ladder. He stood on top of it. Now much speculation has gone into trying to figure out what was going on with this ladder and the angels on it. But one thing this scene does for us is it represents the distance between God and man. God is all-powerful. He is perfect. He is holy. He is above and beyond our reach and our comprehension. And yet in this ladder with the angels ascending and descending, we see God's condescension, God coming down to his people. Just as we see in chapter 7 of our Westminster Confession, God comes down, he condescends to his people by way of covenant. This latter is a visual picture of God's covenantal condescension. God has appeared to Jacob and as we will continue to see in this text, he does so to confirm and reaffirm his gracious covenant promises and blessings. Now, a lot of the speculation on this passage concerns the angels. Well, what are they doing? Why are they there? This is what happens often when the Bible mentions angels. People love to speculate and dwell on and think about the angels even more than they should. But Calvin here makes a very important point. We ought to pay more attention to the ladder. Calvin says that the ladder is a figure, a representation of Christ, because Christ is the only mediator between heaven and earth. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Christ is how God condescends, how God comes down to us. Without such mediation, there can be no communion no communication between a perfect, righteous, holy God and fallen, sinful man. 
These angels, they're merely servants of God. They do His purposes. But Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace in all of its forms, all of its administrations, both in the Old Testament and the New. And it is for the purposes of this covenant of grace that God has so condescended to Jacob. And this brings us to our second point. After presence, we come to promise. In the second part of verse 13 through verse 15. God speaks, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. Now, thus far in his life, Jacob had not exactly acted as someone who knew God. But in the previous passage, we saw how Isaac had blessed Jacob with the covenant blessings that God had given to Abraham, and Abraham had passed down to him. But perhaps if Jacob had only heard those words from his father before being sent on this journey, he would have been inclined to doubt and disbelieve. But here God himself, having chosen Jacob, appears to Jacob and confirm and restate the promises himself. And he makes himself known by name. Note, in most English translations, you'll see the all caps Lord there. He comes as Yahweh, the God who is, the God of the name that Jacob would have heard from his father. Jacob now sees and hears the God of which he had only been told. The Lord first confirms and affirms the promise of the land. He says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. This very ground on which Jacob slept with a stone as a pillow, though he was a stranger and a sojourner in it at the time, it would one day belong to his descendants. Now it's not a promise that comes to full realization in Jacob's life. After his time in Haran, he will again dwell in the land for a while, but as a stranger, just as Abraham and Isaac, he won't own it, it won't be completely his, he'll be a pilgrim and a traveler in it. In fact, Jacob will live his last days and die in Egypt because of a famine. But God will bring Jacob's descendants back to the land, and they will possess it, even if Jacob doesn't fully see that promise realized in his life. Of course, the land itself is merely a type, a symbol, a microcosm of the whole earth, which will be possessed by God's people when the covenant comes to its highest realization in Christ. But that is still far off from the time of Jacob. Then next we see the restatement of the promise of descendants. God says that Jacob's descendants will be as the dust of the earth, not merely in number, but also in spread. We get some rather intense wind around here, and we can get dust storms. If it's dry, the dust gets kicked up, and it blows everywhere, in all directions, and there's no stopping it. There's no controlling it. There's no containing it. Jacob is hearing this promise of such innumerable and spreading descendants, and he's hearing this as a man who doesn't even have a wife, doesn't even have a single descendant to his name. When he reaches his destination, he will take a wife, he will in fact take wives, and have many descendants, 
But all of that would probably seem rather distant to him in his current situation on his journey to Haran. Of course, even in his lifetime, his descendants will be relatively limited. He will have 12 sons. He will have some daughters. He will have many children and great-grandchildren. But even then, I mean, it's not exactly a, a dust storm. The nation of Israel, even at its height, would be relatively limited, one people in one area. Even today, as there are about 8 billion people on the earth, only about 15 to 20 million of them are Jews, are the physical, biological descendants of Jacob. So this promise is not just talking about physical or biological descendants. This promise, again, ultimately comes to its highest expression in Christ. Because in Christ, the people of God becomes a church which reaches to every tribe, tongue, and nation. A people that spreads like dust on the wind to the furthest parts of the earth. And we have seen this happen. There's Christians on every continent. Christians in most countries and most places of the earth. And we also see a restatement of another of the Abrahamic promises, which closely relates to this. In Jacob's seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. Not just Jacob's family, though the people of God will largely be confined to Jacob's descendants for a time, but there are purposes that reach beyond that in, a future, in the future in Christ and his church to all the nations of the earth. And then finally, God promises to Jacob his continued presence in verse 15. God tells Jacob that he is with him and he will keep him wherever he goes and he will bring Jacob back to the land and he will not leave him until these things have been brought to pass. Now, there are some aspects of these promises, again, they won't be fully realized in Jacob's life, but they will be sufficiently brought to pass so as to prove God true to Jacob. Jacob's going to be gone to Haran many years, longer than he thought, longer than anyone expected. He will labor long for not one, but two wives, the daughters of his greedy and corrupt uncle. There's going to be a lot of hardship ahead in Jacob's life, and there would be many reasons in that for Jacob to doubt the goodness and provision of God. But God will use even these trials for Jacob's good, and he will bring these blessings to pass. God is faithful to his people. He does not leave them. Even in the dark days and difficult times, he does not leave. He did not leave Jacob on his journey. He will not leave you if you are in him. So how does Jacob respond to these glorious truths that have been revealed? This brings us to our third point. After presence and promise, we come to praise in verses 16 and 17. Jacob wakes up from this dream and he realizes this was no ordinary dream. He exclaims, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. In one sense, God is everywhere. But God had chosen this place and time to specifically and particularly reveal himself to Jacob. Whatever Jacob was thinking about, whatever he was concerned with, before he came there, 
He was now confronted with the presence and reality of God and who he was and what he purposed to do through Jacob. We see that Jacob was afraid. Jacob has fear. Now this is the typical and natural response of fallen and sinful man when confronted with the presence of a perfect, almighty, and most holy God. And yet it is not a fear of pure terror, a fear of only thinking that I'm about to die, I'm about to be destroyed. There may be aspects of that, but it is also clear that God came to Jacob to bless him and to comfort him and to confirm him. But it is a fear that Jacob has, as Calvin puts it, that produces pious submission. The fear that we might have for a king or a father or a boss, someone else who has a position of lawful authority over us. This fear is the recognition of our place in relation to the one above us, and the reverence and recognition that that requires. Jacob realizes that this God is his God and must be his God, and he will serve him as God. Jacob also recognizes a significance to this place. He says that it is awesome, that it is the house of God in the gate of heaven. Now it's not literally those things. God does not dwell in his creation. He does not dwell in temples made with hands or other things. But it was in this place that God chose to reveal himself to Jacob in a clear and powerful way. God has condescended. He has come down to his people, and it is an awesome and powerful and amazing thing. Now, what if I told you that God still does this. He still comes down. He still condescends and meets with his people. He doesn't do it anymore by these dreams or visions, but he does it by his ordinary means of grace, by the preaching of the word, by the sacraments, by this worship that he has called us to each Lord's day. What we experience here is no less significant than what Jacob experienced there. Of course, our reactions are often not as excited or pious. We come into the presence of God wondering when we'll get out so we can go have lunch or get back to whatever we were doing. Far from Jacob's sentiment can our own be. We should never think it trite or wrote, or an insignificant thing that God has chosen to meet with us here. And we should diligently attend to it and hold it in its proper regard. Jacob is so taken aback and moved by this revelation of God in this place that he takes the steps to memorialize it. And this brings us to our final point. After presence, promise, and praise, we come to a pillar in verses 18 through 22. We see that Jacob took his pillow stone and raised it up, made it into a pillar, and he anointed it with oil. It was a memorial, it was a monument to what God had said and done in that place. Now, it was not an idol, it was not something itself to be worshipped, but it was something to remind Jacob and others who would come after who God is and what he had done. 
We also see that Jacob gives the place a name. He calls it Bethel, meaning house of God. It was there that Jacob saw a vision of the house of God. It's where he first saw for himself the glory of God. But Jacob not only emerges from this, setting up a physical memorial to who this God is and what he did. Jacob himself, he has been changed. His faith is now manifest, not only in setting up a stone, but also in what he says and in what he vows to do. Having seen and experienced the presence and power of God, the covenant blessings by which he and his descendants will be saved, Jacob responds in an obedience of thankfulness and gratitude. And he swears a vow. Now he prefaces with these words, if God will be with me. Now this would sound like something conditional. Maybe perhaps in Jacob's still ignorant and inexperienced thinking, he might see it as conditional. But the fact is, everything that he makes as a condition of this vow is something that God has just told him that God is going to do. In other words, this promise, this vow, rests entirely on God's own faithfulness to his word, which is perfect and unfailing and certain. There are these conditions keeping Jacob in the way he is going, providing bread and clothing, the things he needs to stay alive, and providing the means of Jacob's return to the land. All of these things God has just said that he will provide. And Jacob says, if this is true, if this will happen, then God will be his God. So it's not like this is a conditional vow and that Jacob needs to wait and see what God will do and then decide later if God will be his God. Again, these conditions are the conditions God himself has set. And so if God is true to his word, then Jacob will worship him. And of course, God's word cannot and will not fail. If it did, he would not be God. He would not be worthy of such honor and worship. Jacob is responding in faith to God's word and the God who keeps his word. As God has pledged himself to Jacob, Jacob now pledges himself to God as long and as far as God is true to his word. Now Jacob names this place the house of God, Bethel. Now again, this is not literally the house of God. But it does remain as a symbol of God's favor to Jacob and of this appearance to him. Jacob pours oil on the stone. That's something of a sacrifice, a gift, a symbol of his commitment and obedience to God. And then Jacob also vows to give a tenth, a tithe of his possessions to God. Now Jacob will become rich. He doesn't have much now, but he will become wealthy. And he vows here that as this happens, he will remember God. He will give God his portion. Again, we see God's grace and favor to Jacob, but we also see it producing the obedience of faith in worship and in deed. So, God visited Jacob and communicated his truth to Jacob. Truths not only of Jacob's life and his prosperity, but most of all, truths of the eternal, 
truths of redemption. He met with Jacob and spoke to him words of life. The words of the gospel in shadowy form in these covenant promises. What Jacob saw in shadows comes now to us more clearly. Jesus Christ is the son of Jacob, who is the son of God, who came down into the world to redeem a people from their sins, to be true worshipers of him. He lived the perfect life we could not. He died the death we deserve. It is through him that all the nations are blessed because it is through him that all the nations come to know God. Just as Jacob at the recognition of the presence of God worshiped God, we too have come into God's presence this Lord's day. His word has again been revealed to us. These words of life and God calls us to worship him. He calls us to repent of our sins to believe in Him, and to obey Him with the obedience of faith. Will you do so today? Will you be as Jacob, who worships God in the place His glory dwells? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this Word that You've given us. We thank You that You have condescended by way of covenant. You have come down to us. You have revealed to us the words of life, the words of salvation. Pray that all here gathered would believe them, would receive and rest on Christ as He is offered in the Gospel, and that we would worship You in spirit and truth as You have called us to do in the place where You have promise to meet us, that we would not think it a trivial or trite thing, but we would attend to it faithfully. I pray also that all that we are and all that we do would make your name great wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.